Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Not exactly thieves, but beginning in 81. Oh, I almost said 91. <laughs> That's because we're in the 91 uh, in telling the story. In beginning in 81, we called ourselves Thieves Theater, but we didn't just do theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Yeah, what we really liked doing, though, was sticking... <laughs> Sticks and anthills and uh, watching the ants scurry and adjust to their new reality, their <laughs> new status quo. Yeah. Um, we had told you early on that one of several reasons for doing this podcast after publishing the journal um, was to finally dig deeper into why we did what we did. So 30 years ago, we just kind of boxed everything up and all the writings, all the photos, all the memories, and we put it in our basement and we forgot about it. Um, Sure, when talking to people about our work, what we do in theater, all our projects, as soon as we told them about the teepee, that's all they wanted to talk about, you know, for good reason certainly unusual project right (laughs) but we had become pretty practiced at just kind of glossing over the story and just telling the broad strokes but we now felt that it was high time that we take took a closer look at what we did and to examine it in detail and to analyze it and to really take responsibility for it why well for one thing, because against all odds, we survived. Sort of. We survived. Yeah. We survived the violence. We survived AIDS. We. Yeah, not like most others on the Hill who didn't. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's kind of our job to tell the story and to honor the lives lived. But also... To keep growing and learning, you have to be willing to look closely at your own life and to try to make sense of it. You can't just bury it metaphorically or actually in your basement. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to look at it and confront it head on and um, try to make sense of it. So recently, in writing these episodes and talking them through, uh, we kind of discovered a large piece of the puzzle about why we erected the teepee in the first place, but more importantly, why we stayed as long as we did. That's what really confused us. And by we, I mean Nick. (laughs) We stayed, but but, uh, what we discovered, the piece of the puzzle, was your piece of the puzzle, because I just kind of followed you into the breach on this, right? right? And uh, so uh, what is about to follow is a pretty personal story that we hemmed and hawed about whether or not it should be told publicly. But we decided that for friends, for family, and also for strangers, if anyone is going to get anything out of the telling of this story, it's important to be transparent and, and as honest and open as possible, uh, to be vulnerable, that's what art is all about. Otherwise, there is no point. 
Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think what I figured out, what prompted us, me in particular, what drove me to do the project and what drove me insane after me, Mr. Lee's death, although insane is the wrong word, probably autocorrect underlines the word and says something like the term implies mental health bias. You're okay. kidding. No, no. I mean. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. What a different world we live in now. Right. Uh, I grew up the oldest of six kids. My brother Steve was two years younger to me. And as we were kids, my mother dressed us up alike and we did everything together. Even in our teens, when we hung out with delinquent kids who were a little bit older than us. So I always felt guilty for leading my younger brother into that life. I'm talking about delinquency. And, uh, but even earlier than that... But who should take responsibility for leading you into it? There is no, the no, first question. No, right. nobody was leading me. I mean... Sure, sure, Nick. That's, uh, that's well, all. How did the people on the hill end up on the hill? They didn't do their... It's uh, whatever. I mean, I, I nature. I, I, I'm not looking for somebody. Nurture. I mean, I'm talking about Steve and how I let him into the okay. see. Uh, I mean, you know, just feel like you're hard on yourself always. Okay, go ahead, continue. <laughs> um, you know, but even earlier when we were young kids, I mean, when we were eight and ten years old, there was something that is always vivid in my mind uh, that still haunts me today. And that's how I led them into catching and killing mice. At the farm where we lived, there was a storage bin with grain in it and where there were always mice. And I taught Steve how to catch mice and throw them against a wall. With, with, with your hand? With your bare hands and uh, throw them against the wall and kill them. <laughs> Far cry from today, right? Like we outlined in the last episode. Right. <laughs> These days we put out live traps if we have yeah. them in the apartment and we yeah, I know. suck up uh, spiders and insects in a little mini vacuum cleaner and we put them outside to set them free. Yeah, but you know, on the farm we grew up killing, I mean, where slaughter of animals was and hunting for food was just part of life. And we were schooled that some animals, even though they weren't for food, they were the enemies of our food, like mice and groundhogs, and who fed on our crops and grain. And they were enemies to be hunted and killed. So that's what we were doing as little kids. Anyway, one day Steve grabbed a mouse and he got bitten. So he had to go through a series of rabies shots because hmm. the mouse got away. You couldn't check to see if it had rabies. And I went with him and my mother when he got the shots. It were, there were 14 days, and he got the, these gigantic needles, and they were put inside each side of his stomach and then each side of his ass alternately over yeah. the four days. Yeah. And, you know, he suffered under that. I mean, and I watched him crying, you know, watching As a, as a kid, sure. They're, yeah. they're difficult enough as an adult, right? Well, his abdomen swelled up on one side. Maybe it got infected or something, and they had to stop giving the shots there and did some kind of other, alt you know, skipping that spot. And although we were two years apart, we were in the same grade school, so we sometimes had recess and, you know, breaks out in the hall together. Mm -hmm. And one day I saw Steve was in a fight with this older kid. And, well, what I really saw was Steve pinned against the lockers and the older kid hitting him as hard as he could in the stomach. Ah. 
Yeah. This was during the rabies treatment? No, right, exactly. Ah, geez. So what, what happened was from the pain of it or whatever, the shock of it, Steve just passed out oh, cold shit. on the ground. And I mean, I, I don't remember what happened next, but I do know my mother was called in to take both of us home. Steve, because of what happened, yeah. right? And me, because I, I guess I had beat the kid up so bad that, you know, it was a problem. I just remember us both crying on the way home over what had happened. Anyway, that trauma of that whole rabies shots and everything still haunts me because I felt responsible. Oh, jeez. No, no, no. I mean, it, it, no. Oh. This is psychology. This is I not, know. I know. oh, my God, you, how know. can you feel responsible? I know. Ask Freud why you feel responsible. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, I, I also led Steve into our delinquency. As teens, we drank every day. We, we sniffed glue and marijuana, of course, but I don't think we used any other drugs. And we got in a lot of trouble. I mean, to the point where when I was 18, now I was no longer a juvenile, I did something and I was going to go to prison. And uh, instead, I went... It, it, it wasn't murder. <laughs> it, no, it, wasn't. it was juvenile, but he was an adult now. So, yeah, but instead I snuck around town. I enlisted, I enlisted in the Army, and uh, I think I talked about it in an earlier episode. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So the Army straightened me out, like it, I guess it does to a lot of delinquents. Either that or kills them. This was <laughs> during the Vietnam War. Most people, most people my age were drafted, and, you know, I, I had enlisted. Um, yeah. And then uh, I got an early out from the Army. You got lucky. He got lucky. He went to Germany and not yeah, to Vietnam. Right. Although you enlisted for Vietnam while you were in Germany. But right. then your dad died, right? Right, right. And when my dad died, I think I, I got an early out because of that, because I was the oldest then of five siblings, and there wasn't a father. I'm, I'm not sure, but I did get an early out. And isn't that another reason that another thing that has always haunted you is you felt like your dad died to save you from the going yeah. to Vietnam? Right, right. I had uh, whatever the form Young was. Young kid's going to be a hero, right, and go to Vietnam. Right. And then, uh, you know, my father, uh, they, right, he died. He was in a car accident, and I got to leave to go see him, And but he hung on inside the hospital for 30 days, and that might have been the reason that I was now too short. They gave me about uh, a half a year out early, so mm -hmm. I only was in the service for about a year and a half. Anyway, I got back, and um, my family was a disaster when I returned. My mother was uh, mentally broke down. What do you mean exactly? Well, I, I don't want to go too far into it, but she was under a lot of pressure, uh, a lot of stress with my father's death, and you know there was no alimony now, no child support, and oh, so she put herself into a like a mental care facility. So you know, I I thought my role was to play father for my younger siblings. There wasn't much to do with that. Uh, it's not that my father had been present in their lives that very very much. When my parents divorced, my mother got custody, and she and the kids lived in the house, and then my father lived in the farmhouse, which was on kind of the same acreage and property just down the road. So um, I did the same thing. I went and lived in the farmhouse like my father With your had. dad? I mean, I mean, sorry, sorry, like, like your dad? Well, yeah, I, I slept yeah. in his bed on the right. front porch. Oh, so, you know, I was whatever was going on there. And then I'd go back and forth to the house during the day and whenever 
see my mother, the kids. And I, I became a coach to the 12 to 14 year old pony league that was there. Yeah, you uh, were taking over your dad's yeah. role. Well, he he probably wouldn't have done that, but <laughs> that my two youngest brothers were in. Of course, I was much younger than all the other coaches who were like fathers of the yeah, players. Yeah, you were, right? what, 20 at the time or yeah, something? Yeah, and they were, you know, 35, 40 or older. 45 or older, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, that seemed all good and right. But the big thing was that my brother Steve had become a heroin addict when I was gone and uh, when I was away at the Army. And Steve only intermittently lived at the house. So for the next couple years, I would go on kind of rescue mis- mis- missions mm-hmm. to try to find him and bring him home. And, you know, I'd be in these heroin dens, these heroin houses or whatever. And I didn't really understand his need, you know, his addiction. But in my mind, I was to blame. The delinquency, the drugs, Steve had followed me into everything. And I, I had led him there. You including didn't. no i know including, you didn't lead him no into heroin. I, no not into heroin right but i mean including the rabies shots and those you know those long needles were in my head <laughs> that he had suffered the, the needles equated in my mind with the heroin needles that i was now seeing in all these heroin dens and people using them Dens-y. sticking them in their arms into their ankles everywhere right yeah so uh, during that time, I also had a lot of confrontations with dealers or other addicts who came to the house looking for Steve because he, they owed him money or something or mm. whatever. And I remember S- Steve suffering to, uh, through a withdrawal once where my mother was nursing him. He was trying to get off the drugs. And in a very determined effort to try to intervene, I drove him all the way out to Arizona once to an older woman's friend's house, hoping that he could... Well, he was, he wanted to get off drugs, withdraw, but I was hoping out there he'd also withdraw from the life that he was living, which was part of it, right? But it didn't happen. He came back and And jumped back. Right back in. Oh, God. Right. It's so hard. It's just so hard. It's like everybody on the hill, right? They they all, at one point or the other, left, made resolutions, good intentions. It's, a disease. It is a disease that needs medical treatment. It's not a failure, a moral failure. It's a disease. Like uh, Elaine left, Ace left, uh, Tony Woodsman and Sue, they, his Sue, you know, they were the saddest in some ways because they were going to go through it all together. And, and then uh, he got busted and Sue was so upset because she didn't know how long he was going to be in prison for. And then she found out it was only going to be 60 days. And she was so excited because he was in the program in prison. And he'd uh, be in the program and get off. And then when he got out, they'd go uh, live happily ever after in mm-hmm. her mind. And the first thing Tony did when he got back is he got into the hut with Ace and with Ivan and shot up. Right. I know. It really was, sad. Right. Well, anyway, Steve came back, and he was eventually arrested and jailed, um, a six-month sentence, probably for just possession or something. I don't know what he... And um, I was lost, imagining the worst. I was conjuring up images about back when I was a little younger than him, and I had gone to jail, and I was almost raped. And I was thinking, oh, shit. I mean, there was no way to help him or protect him. He was in jail now. But his jail sentence was strange because they allowed him one day out 
in a six-month sentence, they allowed him after three months to get out for one day. I don't they know what they cut it in half and then he got out for one day. What was that going to accomplish? That's I don't weird. know. I mean, they were just. I guess I don't know what that sentence was about. But he got out for one day and then he'd have to go back. Yeah. So um, he stayed up on the farm with me, and uh, our brother, our younger brother Tom, was with us too. And uh, and I remember this is an image that sticks with me. Uh, the three of us were lying in my father's bed on our backs, and I was in the center holding each of their hands. Aww. Yeah, and I know, and I was, Aww. and I was leading in some kind of prayer, right? And I was sure the prayer would deliver Steve, me, and Tom to a, you know a better place. Of course, it wasn't Steve or Tom that needed delivering; it was me. I, I was a reborn Christian who was going off the deep end. Yeah, you had become born again in the army, I think, right? Right. And that's and how you got off drugs. Yeah, I got off drugs that way. So I, I was thinking, why can't I get Steve yeah. off drugs? That, Tom, you know. by the way, is the brother that also helped us gather the teepee poles, and he came to visit, and he's still... Yeah, uh, after Steve died, Tom yeah. sort of became my closest... Best uh, friend, yeah. ...brother, yeah. But um, being born had probably saved me in the army from the alcohol and drugs, but now it had become si somewhat toxic in my obsession on it you know mm -hmm. uh, and that combined with the stress of trying to be the caretaker the father and at that time my relatives were trying to talk me into taking custody of the kids away from my mother what yeah your so, own relatives yeah conspired and, with you or tried to against your mother well yeah Holy I mean that crap. was something that was ongoing from when my father when they divorced you know they didn't want my mother to have the kids they wanted to take care of the kids but you know they were trying to get me well because they're your father's relatives your father's yes, side of, of the course. family right yeah, right, okay, right right and um and i was working on the farm with my two uncles uh, but it was winter now so steve went back to jail can i just ask when you were lying there together holding their hands with the two of them what was their reaction like how uh i think they were more or less suffering under it you know <laughs> Uh, you know, they didn't know my mind. State. Yeah, and the whole family was Catholic. Even my aunt, who lives in the farmhouse, she was the maid for years at the rectory, taking care of the priests. So that was her job. Mm. And so they were very religious people. But the prayer I was <laughs> doing was, you know, different than the kind. I, I remember in the winter, I, you know, when there wasn't work out there, I'd be sitting in the living room of the farmhouse and I'd be praying silently I mean not out loud so my aunt and my grandmother wouldn't necessarily know that I was praying I guess mm -hmm. but they'd, they'd go Nikki what are you doing with your hands and what I was doing was while I was praying I was sticking my the fingernail of my middle finger into the palm of my hands and oh, was, God, no, don't tell me. Stigmata? Was, yeah, oh, I was trying shit. to create a stigmata or become the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't uh, know what I was doing. Like I said, I was off the deep end yeah. uh, worrying about Steve and the pressures and stress and everything in there. And I remember that day that Steve was out, I pleaded with him that we should escape together. You don't go back to them three months. I'm putting in jail what I remember of jail. And I uh, said, we'll, we'll just run away to Canada, Alaska, or anywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. But his fears of jail weren't the same as mine. And I guess he felt, well, he was clean of drugs, and he was safe. He felt safe in jail. 
But in my mind, I, I knew he wasn't. When he surrendered himself back to jail then, I was positive something bad would happen to him. Mm-hmm. Um, at the farm, there, you know, we always had feral cats. They lived in the barn and under the woodpile. There were three of them that were still feral, but they weren't as feral as the others, so they'd come out and hang out by the farmhouse, right? I guess looking for scraps of meat or whatever. But, you know, the main job of the <laughs> cats were to catch and kill rats and mice. they get a little bowl of uh, wet dog food in the morning that they'd all share, oh, that you give them. But mm. other than that, not too much, because they, they're supposed to hunt for their food. And anyway, these three cats were less feral. They hung around the, the farmhouse. And um, when I came out from the farmhouse in the morning after, after Steve had left, mm. right, there was one of the cats frozen to death you know and in my mind this was the steve cat you know it was the middle-sized cat and so i carried the cat out into the pasture and uh up by the oak trees and i buried it i mean it was the middle of the winter the ground must have been frozen and uh, yeah and all these things i don't quite remember but i went out there i'm just conjecting you know it's conjecture that i i did all this i buried the cat and uh the only two sequences of everything that I remember, the images that stuck with me, is one image of the frozen cat, the middle cat, that I took out to bury. And the other image is almost like a ghost like me standing over the hole with the, the older cat down below mm-hmm. and uh, me with a shotgun. <sighs> and, you know, I, I don't remember the shotgun blast or... I don't remember anything of it, but these two images, you know, are the ones that stick in my mind. And, um, you know, I used to weep uncontrollably just thinking about them, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, not so much anymore. But the two cats buried together still wasn't enough for me, you know, in my mind. So so wait a second, you thought you were killing your cat, the cat that was you, to go with the cat that was Steve? Yeah, you know, it's, I I don't know what it is. I mean, psychologically, I don't know what it is, but I thought I could go to wherever he was, you know, frozen. Yeah, he was frozen. To me, you know, he was frozen in fear in in the jail. And (laughs) like I was once frozen in fear in jail and I wasn't able to resist whatever horror, horror surrounded me, you know, threatening to prey on me. And after I, I did that, that night, I stripped all my clothes down, down to my underwear, and uh, I walked out into the bare field. It was winter. It wasn't tilled yet or anything. Mm-hmm. And I walked out to the field, and I sat down in the field. It was like in between our house, the farmhouse, and a couple of my relatives who also lived on the acreage, mm-hmm. the farm acreage. And I sat down there. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what I was doing. I, I can't remember. I, was I praying? I don't remember. Was my purpose to freeze to death like the other <laughs> cat? I, but um, the only image in, in this whole memory is that my mother and a small crowd <laughs> of my relatives gathered around me. <laughs> Somehow they saw me go out there or whatever, and they called everybody together from the farmhouse and everything, and they were standing around me. And uh, I was just sitting there. I wasn't talking. And um, 
Uncle George was there. George mm. George trapped coyotes oh himself. Oh, my God, for did fur. he ever. Jeez, yeah. I hated going to his house, yeah. seeing all those carcasses. And, you know, he'd always told me stories somewhat gleefully of how a trapped coyote would re- react when someone approached it, when he approached the coyotes, how they would react. And I was sitting in the field silently, not answering any questions or pleas that were coming to me. And George bent down to pick me up. And uh, I turned to him and looked him in the face, and I growled viciously at him, Mm. you know, one of his coyotes. And it scared the shit out of him, of course. And I I don't remember what happened next, but I ended up in the... uh, psychiatric ward at either St. Joe's or Silver Cross Hospital. You know, a family member, I don't know if it's true today, but you can put someone into a psych ward if, uh, without their permission. If they're of imminent danger to themselves or, or something No, like no, that, that, that becomes, yeah, that's a, a different thing. But I think a family member, yeah, can put, put you in for 24 hours or something. But in any case, the next day, I know my mother, probably some of my relatives were pleading with me to admit myself Mm -hmm. for care, right? And uh, I guess maybe I had recovered my mind enough or whatever. I had signed myself in. No, I hadn't completely (laughs) recovered. I remember something horrible, and that was calling my, my brother Tom, who was at the farmhouse, and telling him that um, Steve and I wouldn't get released until he killed the smaller cat. Oh, jeez, Nick. I know. I, I, uh, of course, Tom was crying in the phone, and he was understanding how I was thinking, but he uh, saying he couldn't do it. And I mean, even then, whatever state I was in, I knew the horror of what I had said, you know? Yeah. And I, I told him, no, don't do it. You know, I hope I said don't do it. At least part of me realized that, yes, I was insane, right? Tom was really young at that point. Yeah, yeah. He's the second youngest, so you're all two years apart. So how old was he at that time? Uh, 10 or something? 14. 14. Okay, but still, Jesus. So like everyone else inside the ward, the psych ward, I I got in line every morning and took the meds that they passed out. Like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, is what that conjures. Yeah, where they... I didn't see anybody not taking the pills or hiding <laughs> anything. But, um, and I really can't remember anything of what happened during my stay. I, I do remember talking to the psychiatrist, sort of. The, the one talk I partially remember was her saying stuff like, uh, you told me you believe in God and pray. Does God ever talk to you? Do you ever hear his voice or other voices so you know they're i guess they're trying to suss that out yeah schizophrenia but i believed i was a martyr for my beliefs like all the other christian martyrs in early history you know oh catholics yeah but um i did find a compromise to my situation i would pretend i was cured of my beliefs i guess with a promise to myself that one day i would find a larger stage for my martyrdom. You know, know, my audience was now just too small in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was, it was, I had to be a star. (laughs) Right. But I did have my extended family, you know, who now, since my parents had been 
divorced were bickering over everything mm-hmm. and trying to get custody of the kids and everything. But now they were all together in concern of me, right? Talking with each other, I guess. You barely. know, and that kind of still happens today. You bring them together, but not over concern for you because okay, you're the don't. only one that doesn't hold grudges. <laughs> well, yeah, or I was the only one who was insane. Oh, you know. that. Right. Could be that, easily. Right. So um, they were all together in their concern for me. Mm-hmm. But I decided I would postpone my martyrdom and <laughs> act, play cured. So after about two weeks, the uh, psychologist had me come into her office. She told me she had signed my release and I could leave. She had prescribed me, she was describing the prescription that I needed to take every day after I left. And stupidly or honestly or insanely, I told her I wasn't going to take any medication. (laughs) (laughs) I could see on her face. So close to acting normal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I could see on her face how angry she was. (laughs) She was really angry. She called in the the orderlies and they strapped me out on a gurney. And then they wheeled me into a room where a nurse, with the help of the orderlies, pulled down my pants, (laughs) the back of my pants, and gave me a shot in, in my ass, you know. And then they wheeled me back into the doctor's office and unstrapped me from the gurney. And the doctor said coldly, very satisfied, that she had won the debate on whether I was going to take medications or not, (laughs) right? You can leave now. Someone is waiting for you in in the lobby. But, you know, a a couple weeks after I was released, I had a horrible reaction to whatever the drug was I was given. And I was, uh, my whole body started shaking uncontrollably. You know, I was un- I couldn't stop it from shaking. Oh, and my, my uncle, who I was working with at the time out in the field, he, he rushed me to the emergency room. Of course, he was scared too. And uh, I was shaking the whole way there. And they saw the history of my drug or whatever. We must have went to the same hospital. So they concurred that it was probably the drugs that they gave yeah, you? Yeah, and they gave me the exact drug to counteract whatever uh, reaction ah, I was okay. having. Or they knew what so the symptom was. So that wasn't was. just conjecture. No, It no. really was because of that. Yeah, and so then I went back. I was all right. And I guess the effects of the medications gradually wore off, and I was cured. I guess I was also cured of, in my head of the Christian martyrdom. Because after my brother got out of jail... He was in a methadone program, Mm -hmm. and he had recovered. He had a steady job, uh, a steady girlfriend who had a small child, so they were like a a little family. He was a family man. Um, Just a few months after that, he he died in a car accident, though. And so, uh, yeah, so no more Steve. Um, I went back to school, and I discovered literature through Goethe. And I was starting to become a writer through that. Right. Uh, there was Goethe's The Sorrows of Werther. <laughs> Sorrows of Young Werther, I think is how it was called. Right, yeah. I think it is, yeah. Th- that novel had been banned once in Germany and other countries because it had triggered what was known as the Werther effect. Right, meaning everybody was committing suicide, young, yeah. kid, young kids. Right? right, yeah, after no. relating to the main character. And, uh, and I began writing what I called the sad letters of James. James is Nick's middle name. Right. So it was your pseudonym. Sort yeah. of, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a memoir of sorts about the time with Steve and um, me. Though now I was starting to objectify my experience in psychology. 
that I had back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now my present mind as a kind of rela- uh, a lapsed, reborn Christian, lapsed Catholic, whatever. I wasn't, I wasn't obsessed with Christianity at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, in writing, in revisiting that time, what was interesting is that I researched the drug that they had given me when I was in the psych ward. And they had put that drug through trials uh, before they put it in humans, I guess, or maybe after. And they injected spiders with it. And the spiders, under the effect of the drug, would build webs, spider webs, precisely the same way they did before they took the drug. But the webs were smaller in size. significantly smaller in size, but in the same pattern and everything of the larger webs when they were not under the effect of the drug. Well, what did they learn from that? (laughs) Well, the other... conclude from that, right? Well, the other thing they they found was that this change was permanent. And when I found that out, I took it as reality, more than just metaphor for what happened to me, that uh, I had permanently changed and such things as the bible or new testament was now just literature in my mind albeit the most important literature in the western world hmm. but now just literature <laughs> my mind is spinning here no, but about I, what might be possible as a vaccine <laughs> to certain groups of people <laughs> right maybe put it in the water or something like <laughs> like who, who did that during the 68 uh Yippee thing. <laughs> Abby Hoffman Abby threatened Hoffman, to put yeah, the LSD into the Chicago water. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I was also finding that the miracles and revelations, which I did have during my reborn Christian stuff, they were amazing. You know, mm-hmm. Insights. And How so? What do you mean? Well, I. It was, there were just little miracles. And I, I can't even remember them, but I mean, that's what made me into a reborn Christian. I could see it happen. Mm-hmm. Whether it was getting off drugs or anything, it was, there were little revelations, miracles that prayer brought me. But now um, I didn't have prayer. I was finding in writing and the study of literature the same thing, these little miracles. Yeah. And I think that's sort of when we met. Yeah, when we were. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, you were still suffering terribly under Steve's death. You were so, he was so introverted. And he'd sit there like this at dinner, you know, with his, his head kind of tucked under and his uh, f- hands around his face. I would want to move his hands out of his face. You were so, so introverted. Well, and I don't know if that was about Steve. It was uh, just you about Ryan. cried constantly, well, Nick, when we were first no, together I know, and were living but, together. You yeah, constantly but, but weeping, that was, weeping, weeping. Yeah, but that know? was also writing. Writing, I was sure, at that time. Sure, it was a combination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And exploring, like, um, you know, like Manly P. Hall. Yeah. And I got you to read. You, we read all of Manly yeah, P. Hall. Yeah, you, you got me into Manly P. Hall, that's for sure. Uh, uh, he was kind of a esoteric philosopher if you want to look him up um, and this is also where the tarot obsession came from right man right. be all right yeah and so this whole expo- exploration into the esoteric arts right, right. sort of uh peaked when we put up the he- teepee yes yes and i mean go ahead my well my no, no, you, yeah well my belief in the art and and art and metaphysics was my new religion now absolutely Right. Um, yes. And 
it goes a long way towards explaining a lot of things, including why you saw signs and everything, um, yeah. and why uh, when Mr. Lee died, you uh, went totally insane. Yeah. Again. Right. Um, yeah, that's and, because and then really started seeing signs, and I was really worried. I almost checked you in. Right. I didn't know what to do. Uh, it yeah. just triggered. The whole Steve experience from you again, again. You couldn't save somebody, right? Right. And um, I saw then that Steve and his heroin addiction was also one of the reasons I was on the hill. Yeah. Because I saw in all the different heroin addicts on the hill, as I got to know them and love them, you know. Yeah. I saw my brother Steve in all of them. The struggle, the yeah. terrible, terrible struggle by very lovable people. And I said that right from the start. Right. They were all very lovable people, every last one of them. Regardless of what they were driven to, they were family at a certain point, which is why we didn't leave, I think. You know? right. um, that, that, that is the most concise explanation. Right. So, well, yeah. I don't Did know. You wanna... No, I think that's it. I don't, you know, I mean, it's just, that was it. I mean, at an unconscious level, I was still... Yeah, and it explains mm. a lot, right? And that's not something that we connected. No, at the time, you don't know about it. At the time. It. You, it's all at an unconscious level. But the interesting thing to me is that once you finally make the connection, it seems so fucking obvious. Yeah, yeah. That it's like, really? This right. is the first time this occurred to us? Right. Your fate is like written through your unconscious, not through your conscious Yeah. Mind. That's what drives you through your life, I think, in everything you do, right? Yes. And part of you feels it. Don't you feel that way? I, like, I always feel like I could figure this out. It's, it's just there for me to grab, to yeah. take a hold of, and yet I can't put it together. I can't right. put it together. I have vague little snippets of what I know and what I don't know. And it's just right there for me to reach. And I can't, I can't figure it out. Right. I think, we, I think most of us go through life that way, though. Right? right. But, I mean, from the last episode when we were kept questioning why we stayed there, when all that violence and everything was else was going on, there was so much danger and everything yeah, else. Yeah. It, it was, for me, it was that earlier trauma or story with Steve that kept me there and still yeah, going yeah. through you it. You don't right? abandon the ones you love. Right? right, right. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about our trip out west and more Native American reaction um, at Pine Ridge, for example, uh, to what we were doing. And then we're, we're just going to um, continue the trajectory of the hill and how and why it eventually all came to an end. Yeah, and again, feel free to write us yeah. um, about this or any other topic at podcast at thiefstheater.org. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely, and um, as always, really appreciate your listening. Um, please like, subscribe, and all that, and hit the bell. <laughs> Check out our website at thiefstheater.org, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I. -I. Keep you on the hill. Thanks, guys. Thank See you, you next time.